Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about behinds, rear ends, badonkadonks, Yeah, That's right. Yeah, this was a listener suggested topic. And what a fantastic topic it is because, Caroline, I feel like... We are pop culturally living in a very buttastic <laughs> era. I I think we are too. Um, we, you know, we we passed through the era of heroin chic, a la Kate Moss, and now we are in the era of Kim Kardashian, for instance. Um, and there's a lot of like videos out there on how to do your exercises to get your big butt and things like that, and so. You know, while I think body acceptance of any kind is wonderful, we really should look at why, how we ended up in this era of butt-tasticness and where all of this butt worship came from. Yeah, we're really, we're just really into butts. Um, <laughs> side note, you can follow us on Instagram, by the way, at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And I'm saying that because speaking of Instagram, some listeners might also follow the uh, so-called butt selfie queen. Jen Selter, this woman has made a social media empire for herself solely based on butt selfies. Yeah. Which are called belfies, in case you were wondering. That is, that is the point that we are at in terms of our butt obsession. So why don't we first start off with some butt science? That's right. Why do we have butts? What is a butt? Yeah. What is a butt anyway? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just a good squishy place to grab onto. It happens to be a very important muscle that helps stabilize the hip and help us walk. Now, apes, for instance, have a really tiny, teeny, puny gluteus maximus that helps them climb trees, but doesn't really help them stand for very long. And so I'm wondering if I have more of an ape butt, because I really don't like standing. Could be, Caroline. <laughs> um, so humans evolved a thicker, more powerful gluteus maximus that attaches higher on our hip bones that offers more leverage and keeps us stable while walking. And so a question that a lot of evolutionary researchers have seriously pondered is which came first, walking or our butts? Well, funny you should ask, Kristen. Physical anthropologist Thomas Greiner thinks that the butt came second. So based on studies of how our muscles change and grow, Greiner thinks that the butt came after the whole walking and standing things because our rear ends do make it too hard for apes to walk. We, along with our big butts, we have also a shorter ischium, I think it's pronounced. It's the part of like our rear ends that we sit on. And so that whole shorter ischium, bigger butt thing would make it too hard for apes to get around. So, yeah, so we have butts to allow us to walk. And we cannot lie. We can't, we cannot lie. I know it's going to be very hard to resist making a horrible number of Sir Mix-a-Lot puns throughout this podcast, but I promise you this, listeners, I will try my best not to. <laughs> I can't make the same promise. But one, but one thing that we have to also talk about regarding butts is the question of hair. This was one, uh, another evolutionary question. That caught my eye while researching for this episode, which is why do we still have 
hair between our butt cheeks because it seems like you know not not a lot of people are super jazzed on it it's mm-hmm. not like oh yay i have a super hairy butt how fantastic <laughs> um so why didn't we in our process of shedding our fur also shed that let's just say it butt crack fur the answer is essentially because it didn't exert enough selective pressure for humans to have to evolve to deal with it so putting that in plain speak we were still able to have sex and reproduce with our butt crack hair, <laughs> which I really don't like saying. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. No, but basically, like, you know, you can fake hairlessness. And so, you know, if your partner prefers to reproduce with someone who is hairless, you can fake that and your hairy genes will sneak right through into your children. That sounds weird. But... Um, it's it's kind of like when we talked about men having nipples. It's kind of the same thing. There was no reason to evolutionarily uh, select against it. Yeah, they were like, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. Just keep your nipples and keep the hair in between your butt cheeks. Keep that crack warm. You're gonna have sex anyway. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> evolution, so complex and yet so simple. <laughs> um, but then when we get into women and butts, because that will be the focus of this episode, is particularly the female butt, because. In case you haven't noticed, women tend to have larger, rounder, more fantastically buttacular (laughs) butts to the point that it's actually a female secondary sex trait. So why would women have bigger butts? It's all hormones, baby. Estrogen encourages fat storage in our rear ends. Testosterone, meanwhile, discourages fat storage there. Yeah, but why, Caroline? Why would those hormones even do that? Uh, evolutionary psychologists think that, yet again, evolution, so complex and yet so simple, they think that our lady butts perhaps evolved to signal youth and fertility, which then leads to sex, propagation of the species. Right. Like, hey, look at my butt. I can sustain a pregnancy. Yeah. I'm very fertile. Look how big my pelvis must be through which I will pass a a human child. I have a very healthy butt. So you want to take me to dinner (laughs) or what? That's right, caveman. Take me to dinner. But in 1985, there was a theory that the female buttocks developed to be so large as it is. In order to prevent copulation from behind. Yeah, by creating the the large butt, uh, according to this 1985 theory, which has been called into question, it promoted face-to-face sex. Just like the missionaries. Yeah, and attached to this 1985 theory is that breasts, meanwhile, developed, you know, obviously female breasts, much larger than male breasts, developed as a sort of front butt, essentially to, again, promote face-to-face sex, to transfer the butt attraction from our backsides to our front sides, which, side note, this leads to, and I'm not trying to be crass here, listeners, this leads to a question often raised, especially in heterosexual dating schema, are you a breast guy or a butt guy? Hmm. All goes back to... 
evolution. But like I said, that 1985 theory has been called into question. And in fact, there is a more recent theory that says that breasts and butts, which are essentially, you know, these these fat storage areas on our bodies, really developed to store fat during periods of lactation and or food shortage in the super hot and dry climate east of the African Rift Valley, Hmm. where the earliest humans evolved. Interesting. There's also, if we're, if we're talking about more modern theories, there's also a study in the Journal of Obesity that associated bigger butts and thighs with better health. Now, a lot of people, a lot of researchers have questioned the validity of this, but these particular researchers say that lower body fat has a striking protective role in terms of having fewer heart attacks and less instances of diabetes. They argue that the fat in your butt and in your thighs is more stable than belly fat, uh, therefore causing fewer fatty contents to circulate throughout the body. So, And then that would jive with the evolutionary psychology thinking that women have bigger butts as a way to signal our health yeah. and fertility and readiness to make a baby with well, a with a special someone. Special someone indeed. And speaking of special someones, we've got to talk about the idea that straight guys, when they look at women, are either a boob man or a butt man. And there have been studies on this. I was rather excited to find. Uh, there was a 2000 study titled, Perception of female buttocks and breast size in profile. And this was an interesting one because it included not only men, but also women and essentially just showed them profiles of uh, women's bodies and sort of played around with the size of breasts and buttocks. And they found that the buttocks size had no effect on attractiveness ratings. Mm -hmm. It was only when they manipulated breast size that they saw a relationship to attractiveness ratings. Right. Um, Some they did say like towards the end of the the study that the fact that these study results were slightly different from other like silhouette studies were that apparently some of the silhouettes they showed people were like so different from the other silhouettes that they think it is possible that people just pick the silhouette that they considered to be, quote unquote, more normal or, you know, like something that's not quite as exaggerated, not necessarily that people prefer a smaller bust or a bigger bust, etc. Well, and in terms of real world application of that. It's not like we're walking around, you know, like men just see a, a, like silhouettes just <laughs> walking down the sidewalk. So I do wonder, it's like when you see methodologies like that, you wonder how much credence you can really give to them. Um, so there was another study in 2012 in the Archives of Sexual Behavior that compared men's reported butt or breast preference with their eye gaze. So this this was a, a little bit different uh, methodology. And they found that, guess what? Men tended to be more into butts, not only self-reporting, but also when they did the eye gazing. So they use eye tracking technology um, on the male participants and then showed them, you know, a lovely, a lovely lady and tracked where their eyes went, either to the butt or the breasts. And if a guy said he was a butt guy, he looked at the butt. Interesting. Well, I'm a butt woman. Okay, yeah, this is something that is not addressed in research at all. I think just because 
we tend to associate the butt obsession more with straight guys. Yeah. But I, I re- specifically remember for some reason as a child watching Saved by the Bell and Kelly, <laughs> Ka- and Kelly Kapowski commenting on the cuteness of Zach Morris's butt. Uh-huh. I mean, like, and then the audience laughed and I was like, oh, oh that's funny. What does that mean? <laughs> so, so you are, you're a butt woman. I am huh? a butt woman. And, and, and it, I don't just require like a bubbly baseball player butt to grab onto. Like I like butts of all sizes on guys. Oh, you're, just, you're kind of a, a, a butt uh, anthropologist. <laughs> yes. I'm going through the forest in my khakis with my little explorer hat, just like poking, poking people's butts. He's a little poking stick. Yeah, there's also the fact, too, that men's rears are eroticized in gay contexts. Obviously. Right. I mean, in the same way that people talk about, oh, a woman's butt is close to her sexual organs, so it is taboo. I mean, if you're like Victorian or whatever. Um, and it's the same, it's the same kind of discussion that goes on around gay men. But unfortunately, there has not been research, at least that I found, on male to male butt attraction. So if there are any researchers listening, I would like a study on that. So we've covered now some of the evolution, the science, the psychology of butt attraction. But now we have to get into the cultural history of our fascination and fetishization of large butts in particular. And warning, it is kind of horrifying. Mm -hmm. So brace yourself for that. And we'll get into that when we come right back from a quick break. cultural history of the buttocks, we're really going to focus in on the 19th century because that is when this fetishization of large butts in particular really picks up. But first, we just want to provide a brief timeline of our collective interest in women's rear ends. Right. And women's shape in general, if you're talking about the Venus of Willendorf uh, from 24,000 B.C. This is a figure you've probably seen in textbooks, history textbooks or whatever. You know, she's a she's a carved figurine whose features are incredibly exaggerated. But the focus is her rather large buttocks and thighs, which symbolizes fertility, all of that good stuff. Yeah. And she's one of the, the oldest known pieces of artwork. So that's mm-hmm. why you hear Venus of Willendorf brought up all the time. So jumping way, way forward in time into the Victorian era, which is when this kind of rear end fascination really takes a, a fascinating slash horrifying turn. We have uh, Havelock Ellis, who was a physician, sexual psychologist and a eugenicist who in his series of books, the studies on the psychology of sex describes the butt, the female butt, as highly fetishized and fetishized. It was indeed also in the uh, sex lives of Victorian era Britons. That's right. Spanking was a hugely popular erotic act in Victorian Great Britain. And it was a major feature of pornography around this time. For instance, there was the erotica of the era called Lady Bum Tickler's Revels. Yeah. Lady Bum Tickler's Revels. Um, it was described as popularly consumed spanking based Victorian erotica. Wow. 
Talk about spanking based. It was just like the Fifty Shades of Grey. I know. Bum tickler. Um, well, then, of course, we have to get into Freud because no discussion of history and sexuality and psychology is complete without bringing up Freud. He talks about the anal phase that in his mind was the root of gay sexual orientation. He said that successful adults have to pass through three phases, oral, anal, and genital. And he said that if you were anal retentive and you were stuck in that phase, that you were not only controlling and uptight, but that you had a lot of unresolved issues around your butt. And hence he said, oh, and then you would also be gay because of that. Yep. So that's where that comes from. So, of course, also that paints being gay as some kind of disorder. Right. Good old Freud. <laughs> Good old Freud. Uh, so we'll we'll leave him in the anal phase behind and jump forward to more recent history, because from the 1970s on, this is when we really start to see the female behind being celebrated so much and obsessed over so much in pop culture. So in the 70s, you have a guy named Ego Patangi who developed one of the first widely used butt lift procedures. It's worth noting he was Brazilian. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, because, you know, Brazilian women also known for having larger rear ends. And so that's when we start going under the knife in order to get a Brazilian-like rear end. <laughs> that's right. And people do still use elements of that early butt lift procedure. So Yeah, butt lifts still happen. I should have pulled up statistics on how many people get butt lifts each year. I, I read in one of these sources that there were only, only, uh, 600 performed in the U.S. in 2005. Okay. All right. I don't know what that, how that compares to any other year or any other country, however. But if we're still in the 1970s, we can't leave out one of my favorite karaoke songs, which is Queen's Fat Bottom Girls, which comes out in 1978. And then leap forward to 1992. That's when Sir Mix-a-Lot comes out with Baby Got Back. And we could actually spend an entire podcast digging into the lyrics of Baby Got Back. Well, yeah, because in the song, in the beginning, it's two white valley girls talking about a black woman's rear end. Yeah, and and in not so right nice terms, which is going to tie completely into uh, what we're about to talk about it from the Victorian era. So, but going back to the '90s, in the late '90s, you see more women seeking butt implants, and this is termed the J Lo effect. And we'll get back to Jennifer Lopez later on in the show, because she was actually very important in terms of sort of bringing our rear end obsession into mainstream pop culture, because she was this breakout Latina star, which was, as we'll get into more significant, because she was an African-American. She was not white. She was sort of in, in middling a Latina. Yeah. And it's interesting to watch, like, as culture shifts and changes and as body types come in and out of vogue, which is so ridiculous because it's bodies like whatever, because this one source that we were looking at uh, talks about someone like Janet Jackson, who maybe earlier in her career, you know, she had this rear end. She talked about how her brother Michael teased her for it. And, you know, it was kind of like her butt's big and weird. But as you move forward in time and you have things like the breakout of Latin pop music in our culture, people like J-Lo, who has an unapologetically 
awesome curvy figure, then suddenly it's okay for Janet Jackson to sort of trade on her rear end. And so then in 2001, you have Destiny's Child coming out with their hit, Bootylicious. Mm-hmm. And from there, we get back into our episode long ago on Beyonce, because right. her body is talked about endlessly in one feature of her body that is paid a lot of close attention to is her butt. Right. And then, yeah, that catches us up to people like Kim Kardashian, who, I mean, God, all that's like that, you know, I don't not poor Kim because, you know, I'm sure she's doing fine and she's totally happy with the attention her butt gets. But like, geez, you see tabloid pictures of like, look at what she used to look like. She had a quote unquote normal butt. And now look at it. Yeah. But if you look at it's kind of like Jen Selter, the the Instagram butt selfie queen. If you look at Kim Kardashian's Instagram or her selfies, she is, I think she's very proud of her butt. She's built yeah. a lot of uh, her career, I think, from her butt. Yep, her butt is a lovely foundation. So now we're going to get into a not-so-lovely foundation of our interest, our cultural interest and attraction to large butts in particular. And so we have to talk about a person who deserves far more attention in our history. Uh, Her name was Sarki Bartman, but better known as Hottentot Venus. So during the age of European exploration, it's interesting that this episode is coming out so soon after we did our series on women in exploration, because this is sort of the not-so-pleasant back end of all of the exploration going on, and exploration particularly into Africa. And what were termed excessive buttocks were used to categorize indigenous people, particularly in Africa, as primitive, which was then used to justify their enslavement and or forced subjugation via colonialism. And it was so much this focus on their behinds. Right. And and judging their bodies as ugly as other instead of the beautiful, slim, slender European body shape, which was considered beautiful and accepted and normal, importantly, that that did it did justify the othering of the peoples of Africa. And why the attention on the buttocks? Like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Caroline, during the Victorian era, there was uh, so much obsession with the butt as taboo because it is so close to our genitals. Mm -hmm. And so there was this highly racist idea that these so-called excessive buttocks of indigenous African people were really signs not only of them being primitive, but also of having exaggerated sexuality. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in England during this time, remember, this is like we talked about in our Explorer episodes. This is kind of the golden age of exploration when men and some women are setting out to learn about the world around them. But they're not always looking through very clear lenses at the people who live in the places they're visiting. So England is in flux during this time between a period of looking at people, different people, different cultures as the noble savages Two, looking at it through a lens of ethnology or, more commonly, the branch of anthropology that examines differences between groups of people. And this also ties in to the part in our Explorer series discussing how, as exploration is going on, this is when scientific fields are really starting to be professionalized. There's a big focus on that. Mm-hmm. And so within that, you have this focus on ethnology, which really starts to become 
a racialized form of science using what they thought of as science at the time to prove mm-hmm. that people with different skin colors are inferior in XYZ kind of ways. Right. And so this brings us to Sarki Bartman, known as Hot and Tot Venus. And Hot and Tot is, I don't even like saying it on the podcast because it's actually a derogatory term. Um, it, the word Hot and Tot was derived from the clicking sound of the Khoisan dialect. And the Khoisan are an ethnic group from the Cape of South Africa. And so when these Dutchmen came in and they heard this dialect, they assumed that they were just speaking nonsense because, again, like very limited and and not so clear lens through which they're seeing these people. And so they refer to them as the Hottentot. And one of them captured and enslaved this woman, Sarki Bartman, and then ended up taking her to London to put her on display because this is also the era of freak shows mm-hmm. in London. And so he's like, oh, well, I've got an idea. We're going to take this hot and tot Venus, which is a derogatory combination of hot and tot and also the Venus aspect because her rear was so large, her butt was so, quote unquote, excessive and thus leading into the idea that that excessive buttocks signaled her exaggerated sexuality, which is where the Venus part comes in. Right. And author Rachel Holmes wrote African Queen, the real life of the Hottentot Venus and talks about what happened to Sarki when she was on display in front of people when they uh, took her to London And she was put on display in order to do suggestive, quote unquote, native dancing and play African instruments. If that's not bad enough, she was forced to wear a bedazzled cod piece that was meant to imply to the audience gaping at her that she had elongated labia. And this is what is known as the, quote unquote, hot and tot apron, which is just... Mind blowing. Yeah, because there was this idea that if, you know, someone with such a a large butt must also have such a large vulva and people were oddly obsessed with that image. Mm -hmm. And so you you saw her during this time. You saw her a lot lampooned in cartoons of the day. And she even appeared on the five of clubs on a deck of playing cards in 1811. And in Holmes's book, she sort of tries to paint Sarki as having some shred of agency in this whole thing, even though it's, I think Holmes is taking a little bit of literary license with that because she claims that Holmes was complicit in going on exhibit. And the one, though, shred of agency she did clearly have was that she refused, even though she was asked many times, she refused to ever reveal her vulva. Right. Yes. And uh, well, until after her death. And obviously she did not consent to that. But she died penniless at 26. And Napoleon's surgeon general and the famed anatomist George Cuvier dissected her. He put her body parts on display at the French Museum of Natural History. This includes her brain and this includes her labia, and this includes her skeleton and a cast of her rear end. And at the time, this was heralded as, 
you know, a great scientific undertaking because, mm-hmm. oh, finally we can, you know, under the guise of ethnology and anatomy, these these emerging fields at the time. Oh, well, we can take this specimen as she was considered, not a person, just a specimen and really find out how her brain and body and labia compared to that of white people. Mm-hmm. And so we can then draw racist conclusions from that. And uh, this was, I think, Janelle Hobson, who has written extensively on Sarky Bartman, wrote his thesis, which compared Bartman's genitalia to those of orangutans, formed the basis for much of the 19th century scientific racism, which later evolved into eugenics. Right. So it's it's mind blowing a that this was even happening, but that this important figure in history has been almost lost. Yeah, well, what's even crazier about this scenario is that in 1994, Nelson Mandela demanded that her remains be returned to South Africa, and it was not until 2002 that France finally agreed. Right, because in the 70s, the French Museum of Natural History was finally like, okay, we won't put her parts on display for the general public, but we're going to keep them nonetheless. And when they were going back and forth with the South African government, France was saying, well, we don't want to give her back because then if we give that back, then we're going to have to give so many other things back. But it's a person. She was a person. Yeah. I mean, that, and it apparently took until 2002 for Europe to recognize that. And so what scholar Janelle Hobson has done in studying Sarki Bartman is looking at how Hottentot Venus sort of set the stage for the lingering fetishization of particularly African-American women's butts. Right, because uh, butts were already fetishized, like we talked about, and uh, they were totally taboo. And that was just among Europeans. And then you add the element of this woman from Africa that they bring over and literally put on display. And suddenly there is this fear, this very like gender based, race based fear of someone else's sexuality as other and dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it ties into so many different problematic issues, um, because one thing about this is that her large buttocks, Sarkis, were pathologized as something called statopesia. So essentially, it was this made-up condition that a lot of European doctors said, oh, uh, these African women all suffer from statopesia because they have, quote, excessive buttocks. And she was exhibited as, quote, the most correct and perfect specimen of her race, thus emphasizing the primitive, grotesque, and hypersexual nature of the African peoples, which leads to so many harmful stereotypes that still exist today. Right. And and the fact that then that influences how Victorian uh, Europeans saw black men, African men, as they were just being associated with the wild and otherness of black women's bodies. Yeah. And so Hobson talks about how Bartman being a woman made a huge difference in the Victorian context because this is also the time when women, by virtue of being women, were considered the foundation 
of a group's morality. This mm-hmm. is when you have the era of, you know, the cult of domesticity where women are considered, you know, the, the ones who essentially rein in men's immorality. And so if you have such a, a lascivious woman as demonstrated by her quote unquote excessive buttocks and her state apesia, and then you have men who are attracted to that, well, how horrifying. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. And and it was horrifying for them to the point that white women, if we're looking just at European women, were considered or associated with prostitution if they themselves had large rear ends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is how sexualized the butt had become. And there were fears of white men being attracted to large butts as well. There was even a French vaudeville play called The Hot and Tot Venus or Hatred of French Women in which an aristocrat woman must save her cousin from a savage hot and tot. Oh, goodness. Yeah, and so there's all this fear around large rear ends and what that means and how sexual and, and deviant it is. And yet in the 1870s, Victorian women start wearing bustles. Yeah, this was something, and if there are any costume or fashion historians listening, please write in to let me know if you have any insight on this, because I wasn't able to, there, there's not a lot of focus on the history of the bustle. Essentially, the crinoline style where you have think of like the hoop skirts, the giant hoop skirts fell out of style. And so they start wearing these posterior exaggerating bustles. And while I couldn't find any fashion historian who put the two together, all almost all of the historians looking at Sarky Bartman put the two together mm-hmm. saying that, huh, it might not necessarily be because of her. Obviously they would not be directly emulating her, but clearly there was some kind of appropriation of that big behind happening within this more upper class, white, luxurious yeah. context. It's funny that you should say appropriation, Kristen, because that is a word that comes up a lot when you talk about people like Jen Selter, the butt selfie queen, the fact that she has become so famous for essentially displaying, for being a white woman, displaying a feature that people associate with black women. And don't get us wrong. We're not trying to say that Jen Selter appropriated a butt. You know, <laughs> there are plenty of white women and women of all sorts of ethnicities that naturally have large butts. It simply, when we look at this fetishization of larger rear ends in more contemporary context, it is a question of why, oh, why do we all want large butts now that, you know, we see a Jen Selter mm-hmm. or we see a Kim Kardashian with one. And then you have bloggers like Karima Towns at Think Progress and Brittany Daniel at Clutch, who were basically talking about the fact that features that society associates with black women are not okay until a white woman then introduces them to the culture. And then it's like, oh, well, this is a trend now. This is cool. Well, there is a step along the way to that, that Janelle Hobson talks about, which is in a big way in the late 90s. J-Lo, mm-hmm. because what's fascinating about J-Lo's rise is that she was first kind of brought up in hip hop culture, but then she becomes more popular in white pop mainstream. And so Hobson talks about how through her less culturally deviant 
though still sexualized, Latina body, see also our episode on exotic beauty, that it then begins the normalization process. And so then fast forward to the 2014 Vanity Fair spread of Jen Selter showing off her butt, which elicited, you know, Karima Towns at Think Progress saying, Mm -hmm. whoa, whoa, what? What's going on here? Yeah, exactly. And not that there's anything at all wrong with Jen Selter or J-Lo or Kim Kardashian or whoever, like wanting to take belfies, butt selfies or showing off their butt or anything like that. It's just the fact that there's there's a lot of history behind the behind that is just ignored. Yeah. Butts are a loaded topic. And that's not a pun. At all in any way. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to look at how, you know, you might pride yourself on your rear end of whatever shape it is mm-hmm. and size. But the fact that there's so much meaning behind all of that and, and how society has viewed it over the centuries. Well, and how it has tied into how society, white society in particular has portrayed black women. Yeah. I mean, really what it boils down to is that you know, if if you want a, a history of, you know, why white black women have historically been hypersexualized, you go back to Sarky Bartman mm-hmm. and it all seems to start there because it then is linked to, you know, this idea of African people being primitive and oversexualized and and essentially inferior. Right. But I do hope that via Beyonce, Kim Kardashian, et cetera, et cetera, that hopefully we are in an era where, I mean, we can just maybe embrace a, a big butt for what it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with people being attracted to butts or finding big butts delightful or, or dancing with their big butt. Mm-hmm. I'm basically saying twerking. You know what I mean? Like maybe right. are we in a new era of of butt pride or are we simply recycling Old fetishizations. Well, maybe we are. Maybe we're not. I think that like a lot of things we talk about on the podcast, you know, like butts or don't like butts, small butts, big butts, whatever. But I think it's important to be aware of the way you are talking about other women's butts, whether you yourself are male or female. Yeah. And the assumptions that we make about someone based on her butt, because mm-hmm. I do still think that happens a lot. That was one thing uh, Hobson also talked about was... um how at the 2002 U.S. Open, Serena Williams right. wore this bodysuit and it put her, you know, butt was very much on display. She has a large butt and people would not shut up about it. Right. And when I was reading that, I was like, God, you know, if this were a um, very slim figured white woman wearing some type of bodysuit like that, would they have freaked out as much as they did when Serena Williams wore it, Serena Williams, who is African-American, all of that body politics that goes along with African-American women's bodies. I mean, it's it's layered. Well, speaking of bodies, uh, this reminded me that uh, a couple of days ago, in fact, the uh, ESPN magazine body issue, their annual body issue came out and they did. I think it's like six different covers and the two featuring a woman on the cover, one is, I don't know her name, a, a white female athlete, blonde. And it's the, the cover shot is very face forward and she's holding her breasts and it's just waist up. 
Serena Williams is on the other one. And it's her profile shot. All of the athletes on all the covers are naked, by the way. And it's Serena Williams profile shot emphasizing her butt. Hmm. And I don't and, and she's standing in a in a pose of pride. I don't think it's anything, you know, I think she's she's proud of her butt. So maybe I don't know. It's just interesting that, like, you see the white woman and it's like holding her boobs and then Serena showing her butt. Mm-hmm. So maybe it maybe it is butt pride. I don't know. I need listeners to to share what they think is going on. Yeah. I hope this was enlightening, though. I know it was super enlightening for me. This was a really interesting topic, if I do say so myself. Yeah. I mean, I will not look at a butt the same way. That's right. Ever again. I will not grab a butt the same way ever again. <laughs> ever again. And once you do, once you make contact, you have to at least spout one fact yeah. on this podcast. I just think about the politics of what you're doing, folks. <laughs> yeah. So with that, we want to hear from folks about your butt, other people's butts. What are all of your thoughts on butts? Do you think we are in an era of butt pride or is there still a lot of fetishization at work? Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And you can also message us on Facebook or tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And we have a couple of non-butt related messages to share with you right now. Okay, well, I have a letter here from our social media buddy, Sarah, who was writing us about our women's tennis episode. She says, as a high school and college tennis player, I thought I knew all about the history of tennis, but was excited to learn more. I especially like you addressing the obvious sexism in coverage of female tennis players and the emphasis on their looks. It immediately made me think of the controversy between 2013 Wimbledon women's singles champion Marion Bertoli and BBC presenter John Inverdale. Inverdale commented on Bartoli's looks shortly after she won, saying, Do you think Bartoli's dad told her when she was little? You're never going to be a looker. You'll never be a Sharapova, so you have to be scrappy and fight. Bartoli commented back that she wasn't blonde, never dreamed of a modeling contract, but did dream of winning Wimbledon and that she was proud of her accomplishments. Of course, after Inverdale's comments, Twitter erupted with comments about his looks and the overt sexism, as Inverdale made no comments about 2013 Wimbledon men's singles champion, Andy Murray. She says, love the podcast. I just recently discovered it and have been listening to old episodes nonstop on my commute to work. Well, thank you, Sarah, for listening and welcome to the podcast. Well, I've got an email here from Rachel about our episode on body shaming from a little while back. She writes, I recently had to revisit my feelings on the subject when I started dating my current boyfriend who is a competitive cyclist. His world is very centered on fitness and I've caught hints of body shaming in his vernacular and in the conversations he has with other cyclists. Keeping a low body weight is very important to a cyclist because of power to weight ratio and for the overall performance of an endurance athlete. Like you two, I used to assume that body shaming was a gendered experience that heavily affects women, but through my boyfriend, I had the chance to witness men experiencing it, but under the guise of fitness for cycling. I assume that men don't want to be seen as insecure or even womanly in their weight concerns, so they couch their weight commentary in cyclist terms like leaning out or peaking for a race. Instead of saying getting fat, they'll say losing fitness. And rather than go on the defense describing the life circumstances that prevented them from keeping up their regimen to justify the perceived moral failing of gaining weight. 
A hilarious conversation I overheard between my boyfriend and a cyclist friend went down like this. Hey, do you need a small or medium jersey? I'm still a small. Oh, I just had to check because I know you haven't ridden for a while. I thought you might need a medium jersey now. M for muffin top. <laughs> According to my boyfriend, these conversations are very normal, and it's just considered friendly banter between athletes meant to keep each other in check and have a bit of fun. I think body insecurities are a universal experience that manifests itself in so many different ways, but is just more heavily veiled for boys. To me, it almost feels as though insecurity is for girls and overblown confidence is for boys. So thanks for those observations, Rachel. And I'm going to make myself an M is for Muffin Top t-shirt. I like that. Yeah. It only comes in medium. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, if you would like an M is for Muffin Top t-shirt or would like to share your thoughts with us on anything else, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. Or if you want to get in touch with us via social links to all of that stuff, including this podcast with all of its source links, if you want to read more about the history of Sarkey Bartman, which I highly recommend, there's one place to go, and it's stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 